Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco's Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.
Good morning, everybody. So nice to have you with us from all the places that you find yourself this morning. I hope you have downloaded or have access to the order of service just so you can follow along today. If it is your first time with us, a special welcome. We'll guide you through the service and so will this order of service that should be easily available from links that you'll find beside the live stream. I particularly wanna welcome some folks that I know have been joining us lately because you've written emails to me. So Winston and Sarah, I wanna say hello. It's lovely to have you with us. And when we're casting our net of welcome, I think our furthest away uh, member of the congregation, the virtual congregation right now is um, our member, Jane Stallman, who lives in Ecuador part of the year. So Jane, hi and welcome. And Welcome to all of you. Happy birthday. We had some big birthdays this week in the community. Graham, happy 14th birthday. Hillary, Gianti, Karina, Lisa Nicole, happy birthday. And to all of you who celebrated moments of passage and um, moments worthy of celebration this last week. We're with you in that. So once again, it's great to be here in worship in the middle of this groundhog a month of days that can run into each other. Sunday can be one day that we anchor ourselves into a moment before the, the next week unfolds before us in all the mysterious ways things unfold these days. So let me do, as we have been every week, um, lighting a candle here, this candle in honor of all of us, all of you who are out there, bringing your spirit into this space as we are together in heart and spirit. And we will light this candle until we can be together in body here again. Welcome. Let's sing our first hymn of the morning. You will find it if you wanna sing along, which I hope you will. You'll find it in your order of service. It's number 347, Gather the Spirit. So sing out loud and strong. Welcome. Oh, um. 
with body and spirit united once more. Gather in peace, gather in thanks, gather in sympathy now and then. Gather in hope, compassion and strength, gather to celebrate once again. chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Well, as usual, our order of service is becoming like a mini newsletter. And if you're someone who's just joining us and you want to actually get our newsletter, our weekly online newsletter or our monthly newsletter, which can be mailed out to you also, please let us know in the office, info at uusf.org, or there is a place to fill out a visitor form if that's easier for you. Do that and find out, look for all the things that are ones that call to you, that are interesting to you, whether that be the 8 a.m. spiritual practices groups that I have developed via Zoom, my book group, which is coming up in 10 days, so enough time to get the book and read it. This Thursday, our racial justice Zoom group that's going to be reflecting on what we might do together for and around this piece of our work together in this particular time with its demands and the different ways in which we might need to do that work. So we need all the wisdom and the creative ideas and thinking that we can muster. So please think about joining us on Thursday night. Whether or not you're a member, please consider joining any of these opportunities. They are open to all and we'll have another group looking at climate change in June and lots of other opportunities going forward. So please keep looking through the order of service and the website and join in. It's one way for us to stay connected in these times and continue doing the work of deepening and growing a soul and building community. I did want to say one thanks to everyone who responded even after the official end of our official fund drive and sent in their pledges last week. And particularly, I want to name the fact that a number of you who've been joining us via live stream, 
who have not even set foot in this space sent pledges and donations to help us get to this year's goal as we try to make it through this uncertain and challenging year, robust, keeping ourselves together in this shared conversation about meaning and justice and holding together through it all. So if you're inclined to do that, please, we will accept gratefully any donations to the ongoing life and work of this community. And the pledges are just commitments for a fiscal year that starts July 1st. So you can hit a button and write in what you think you might be able to do to contribute to the, um, the year ahead. And thank you for all you all have already done to make this year a remarkable, successfully done fund drive. Excuse all those adjectives. I believe that concludes our announcements for the day. Anyone else have any announcements? Oh, it looks pretty quiet. <laughs> so let's join together, centering ourselves for the morning in our meditation on breathing. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. You know, the danger of having three bass baritones in worship on Sunday? is that they start way too low for the rest of us. <laughs> Please lead us in our covenant. Now please join us in our spoken covenant and sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
recognizing that there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since last July, in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in detention camps. And we let its ringing symbolically stand also for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, those who remain in such camps, many separated from their families, and many now infected by COVID-19 or at great risk of infection. We also recognize those who wait in makeshift refugee camps at our border, waiting an asylum hearing. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses of the virus we know by name, 32,583 people worldwide who died from it this week alone. And we hold in our hearts all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential service, all who suffer for loss of job, loss of security, and whose lives are especially vulnerable to this disease. And in this month, when we honor Asian and Pacific Island heritage, in this time we name the lives threatened and harmed by anti-Asian sentiment, stirred at the highest levels, a long river of hate and disregard and harm to be named and mourned. May we keep those we have named and their families in our thoughts and prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
Now I invite us into a time of prayer and meditation. We monks and hermits from all our various cells of retreat and intentional communities in close quarters or solitary still places. We gather to settle and anchor in deep waters. Let us breathe deeply. Breathe air that has touched sky and water, air expelled by a leaves stomata that skimmed a bee's fur. Air that has whipped through the crevices of Mount Kilimanjaro and Everest. Breathe. Air that has circulated through 10,000 years of life or more. May this breath, this air, connect us not only to our own being, still and grounded, but to all life. Breathe. And know we are part of something bigger, something enduring. Something that wants to flower after it hibernates. Something generative that has times of retreat. Something wild and ultimately beyond taming. Something urging beyond itself. Breathe. Life. Breathe. Gratitude for life. All of it. For it comes. 
in a package. Breathe. and give thanks. Amen. Our next song is a hymn. Like good Unitarian Universalists, we've changed the words. You can read along with it and hum if you like, or just let it wash over you. been afraid of spiders. One of the ways that I rationalize it is that I always looked up to my older sister. I played with her Barbies, I grew my hair long, and she was afraid of spiders, so I was afraid of spiders too. But of course, a lot of people are afraid of spiders, and I read one study that found that even newborn infants have a stress response when they just see a picture of a spider. Now, of course, most spiders don't pose any real threat to humans, but we aren't always rational when we're evaluating risk. When our bodies are worried, our stress response turns on, and the only thing we can think about is fight or flight, which is great when you actually need to run away from a poisonous spider, because then, once you've gotten away from it, you can relax. But if the thing that your brain flags as risky is not being good enough at your job, and if that's causing a physical stress response with adrenaline and defensiveness, and that keeps going on day after day after day, because you can't just run away from it or squish it like a spider, then that's gonna make you sick. 
If the thing that your brain flags as risky is the mere thought of stepping outside or seeing other people, and that's been on your mind every day for the past two months with no clear end in sight, you can't run away from that. You can't just squish it like a spider. Our brains don't know what to do with it, and it's making us sick. We don't want to treat every single threat like it's a spider. The framework that I learned in the high school debate club for trying to rationally categorize risk has three parts. First, time frame. When wildfires are spreading now, it's better to prioritize responding to those rather than retrofitting your house for the next big earthquake that might come sometimes in the next 20 years. The second, probability. It's better to prioritize responding to the thing that has a 50% chance of happening rather than the one that has a 5% chance. And third, magnitude. All else equal, we'd rather prioritize fixing a big problem rather than a small one. But even when we have a framework, that doesn't mean that we're always gonna be rational. Remember, our brains think everything's a spider that's out to get us, so even when we're trying to be rational, we often go with what makes the most visceral sense. And it's really hard for any of us to think about the abstract stuff. I understand what right now means. If uh, there's a spider in front of me, then I need to get away. I understand what today means. I'll probably want lunch in a couple hours. I kind of understand next week, like I'll need to get some groceries. But if we're talking about next month, and even if we weren't in such a time of rapid change, what does next year mean on a visceral level? So when somebody says that if we don't cut our carbon emissions, we'll have a one degree temperature rise 30 years from now, what does that even mean? And if we can't grasp that on an intuitive level, is it any surprise that we're not uh, worrying about those kinds of risks over a long time frame? And the problem with probability is that high probability means risky, but high probability also means normal. Cars kill over 30,000 people in the US every year, but it's normal. And we tend to start to forget about normal risks, no matter how serious the consequences. So what we're left with after all of these attempts at rational risk analysis is being afraid of the things that are right in front of us and big and unknown, still just jumping at spiders but missing the risks that really matter because they're hiding in plain sight. As the Lorax might say, jumping at spiders forever will be ignoring the later and normalcy. Unless our community can bring us back in, remind us to breathe and see our strength that's within, Focus on issues where we have lots of traction, then watch out world, because we're taking action. Would you harbor me? Would I harbor you? Would you Or spy, 
Would you harbor a runaway woman or child, a poet, a prophet, a king? Would you harbor an exile or a refugee, or person living with AIDS? Would you harbor a Tubman, a Garrett, a Truth, a Fugitive, or a Slave? Would you harbor a Haitian, Korean, or Czech, a Lesbian, or a Gay? Would you harbor a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a heretic, convict, or spy? Would you harbor a runaway woman or child, a poet, a prophet, a king? Would you harbor an exile or a refugee, a person living with would you harbor a Tubman, a Garrett, a Truth, a Fugitive, or a Slave? Would you harbor a Haitian, Korean, or Czech, a Lesbian, or a Gay? Would you harbor you? Like Sam said, it's a calculation we do in our heads all the time. And in general, we try, those of us who aren't addicted to adrenaline or suicidal, we try to keep risk down to a, a low hum, at least when we're confronted with a clear and obvious one, which is one reason, as he hinted, that this virus is so scary. Like all viruses, it's invisible to the naked eye. It hangs out on doorknobs and coffee pots at work. It lingers on the change the corner store clerk hands us. It dances ominously on the breath of hello and crosses the distance between us at 200 miles an hour when one of us sneezes. Plus, the virus is pretty awful once it breaks through our wall of defenses, or it can be. It exhausts or turns our toes red at the very least, but also can fill our lungs, dangerously inflames the tissues of our children, decimates nursing homes, and we still don't know all of how it works or why. 
For many people, getting this virus, while it's an awful bet to lose, may be the loss that takes all our previous winnings off the table in one fell swoop and sends us home. And it makes so much of ordinary daily life a pretty dangerous spin of the wheel. We don't like these kinds of risks as humans. No upside if we win, except that we get to continue living in an awful array of downsides if and when we lose. I'm someone who likes to live reducing my risk and who thinks and always has a lot about it. It's my be prepared philosophy drilled into me by, I think, mostly my adoring and sweetly protective father. How does it show up, this philosophy of life? Well, let me just give you one of many examples I could give you. Every time I am at the beach, I wonder at least once, and often, if I'm being honest with you, more than once, whether there might be a shark in the waters, and I regularly scan underneath and around my feet to see if anything seems to be circulating there. Well, for this sermon, since we're talking about risk, I decided to look up how much of a risk this really is, this thing that's occupied so much of my time at the otherwise beautiful beaches of my life. It turns out, maybe you already know this, that adjusted only to include those who actually swim in the ocean, your and my chance in the United States of being attacked by a shark is annually one in 11.5 million and our chance of death from such an attack. Well, we just heard of such a death recently in California, so I imagine for you, like me, it looms large in our imaginations. But it turns out it only happens once every other year in the United States. Globally, there are between seven and eight deaths annually from shark attacks. Seven and eight far more dangerous, twice as dangerous, it turns out, is falling icicles. 15 people a year globally die at the hand of an icicle. And even more dangerous than that is the infamous champagne cork. 24 people die every year from a wayward champagne cork, often at weddings, so be careful, it's not just dancing the YMCA that can be difficult and wounding on your soul and body, it's those openings of the bottles. Ants, meanwhile, kill about 50 people a year, which is nothing compared to the coconut, which takes 150 lives a year on average, falling generally on unsuspecting people's heads. Elephants? I mean, they're smart and cute and committed to their loved ones, so we have a soft spot for them, but they do take 600 human lives a year, which is nothing compared to the hippo, who takes 2,900 humans a year while the tiny, whiny mosquito kills 800,000 people a year with the diseases it spreads. This, by the way, would be a bad example of how the small can be mighty. So please use David and Goliath or some other story 
when you want to capture that important moral lesson. Now, if you happen to be sitting at home thinking smugly that you don't drink champagne and you don't take siestas under coconut trees or swim in the ocean or go near hippos, then my fellow Americans, let me give you this piece of advice. Please do not sleep in a bed. Because every year, 450 Americans die falling out of their beds. Obviously, there are other more serious stats on risk that we might consider when we're thinking about the unthinkable. How one in five of us will die from cancer in our lifetimes. How one in five women will be raped in her lifetime and one in 71 men. I remember a college professor, a religion professor of mine, Lee Yearly, who taught at Stanford and still does, I was delighted to see recently, when he asked us all to write down on a piece of paper what we predicted would happen in our lives in the next 10 years. Then he asked us to share about it, and people talked about what they expected to fall in love, or get advanced degrees, or see the world, or buy a new car. And when we were done, Professor Yearly, even then with a white beard, said, what about death? Will none of you lose a loved one in the next 10 years? You almost certainly will. Will none of you get fired from a job? Will none of you develop an addiction? We somehow expect the good, he was saying, but we conveniently forget what else might come our way, and yet life has this way of throwing us hardship, and everything is a risk, the sage professor was trying to tell all of us young people. Get a job, kid, and you're in at risk of losing it, right? That's part of what it means to be in the game. Love someone, and they're going to break your heart, and you might lose them. Buy a car, you risk an accident. Have two drinks, that, that chance just doubled, and have two more, and, well, the risk is exponentially high. Some days lately, it feels to me like there's this collective waking up we've all done to the realities of risk. And we've all got our calculators on, and they're hot from constant use. I know mine is. We're calculating how long does risk live on a metal car door? And what about on the mail that just got delivered? And do I need to wipe my groceries down with Clorox wipes, the ones I can no longer find at the store? And if someone walks by me, lazily walking their dog, and neither of us is wearing a mask, what's the viral load coming out of them, and how likely is it to get me sick? And what about the runner who just went by? And what about being eight feet from where Asher just sang in the sanctuary, in a place with soaring ceilings and not quite for an hour in a service once a week. What about all of that? Is it reasonable? Of course. It's reasonable to wonder, to obsess even figure out how to limit the dangers to ourselves and others, but we 
We may not all be vaccinated until May of next year. That's what our denominational president is asking us to hold out as one possibility. And can we live a whole other year in a bubble? People will have to take risks. Some have been since it started. So in thinking about this, I've been wondering about what it would mean to remember, to steady ourselves, remembering what that professor of mine tried to teach all of his students all these years ago, that, that life is inherently risky business, that it, that it always has been. That the Buddhist teaching I heard once, that when someone gives you a bowl, imagine it broken, that it's, it's a metaphor for life, right? That what's been given to us, well, it's always been fragile. It's always a coconut falling, a wipe of the nose, a distracted street crossing away from being over. And so, bigger than our precautions, what if we sat deeply as religious people with that? Because, by the way, did you know that heavy stress can take 2.3 years off your life, so we have to find a good way to hold all of this. And I know some of you are working on that. Schooled by COVID and other surprise losses of this time, Daniel Jackaway, who's head of our worship associates, he wrote me this week words that strike me as worth sharing, and he's agreed to let them be shared about what he's been learning from all of what he's been living with, Daniel wrote. What I've seen in the short run, and I hope I can hold on to, is clarity. Clarity that focuses me on gratitude for what I have. Acceptance that not everything is perfect. And just the right amount of urgency to do what's important to me in life cherishing the bounty and the opportunities in front of me while I can before something changes. How do you live when you know in your bones what has always been true? That life is risky business. Because for this one, our calculators don't help. We have a musical reflection this morning, one from the genius Stephen Sondheim and his work Into the Woods. I want to give you a little bit of background in case you might not remember this piece and where it lands in the work. People often face great dangers to get what they wish. Sondheim's Into the Woods has this song set in such a tale. A baker and his wife, cursed to be barren by their neighbor, risk their lives for a child. After much act one effort, they gain their baby. But a giant, unleashed in the midst of their quest, kills the mother. The distraught, grieving young father, tired of life's hard risks and losses, 
is in this scene visited by the spirit of his father, a father who recognizes the rippling effect of a risk he also took many years ago. I thought you were dead. Not completely. Are we ever? As far as I'm concerned, you are. Is that true? It's because of you that all of this has happened. I climbed into the garden to steal your mother a gift, and I foolishly took some of those beans for myself. How was I to know? How are we ever to know? Then she died, I ran away from my guilt, and now aren't you doing the same thing? No. Aren't you running away? No more questions, please. No more tests. Comes the day you say, what for? Please, no more. They disappoint, they disappear, they die, but they don't. What? They disappoint, in turn I fear, forgive, though they won't. No more riddles. No more chests. No more curses you can't undo Left by fathers you never knew No more quests No more feelings Time to shut the door Just no more Running away, let's do it. Free from the ties that bind. No more despair or burdens to bear out there in the yonder. Running away, go to it. Where did you have in mind? Have to take care. Unless there's a where, you'll always be wandering blind. Just more questions, different kind. Where are we to go? Where are we ever to go? Running away, we'll do it. Why sit around resigned? Trouble is, son, the farther you run, the more you feel undefined for what you have left undone. And more what you've left behind. We disappoint, we leave a mess, we die, but we don't. We disappoint in turn, I guess, forget though we won't. Like father, like son. No more giants. 
raging war. Can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives till that happier day arrives? How do you ignore all the witches, all the curses, all the wolves, all the lies, the false hopes, the goodbyes, the reverses, all the wandering what even worse is still in store, all the children, all the giants, The sermon that I was sitting with for weeks, the question, was supposed to end the way the previous section did. All of us embracing the idea of risk, how to live our lives fully aware, not just of the COVID risks, but the risk of life and the need to realize that this moment is anomalous and not anomalous. But then other news started coming in in the last few weeks, and it was clear that a sermon on negotiating risk couldn't end there. There was some other part of the story, some other part we're in right now, that was anomalous and not anomalous. <coughs> what COVID was bringing to light, everyone points out, what it does is an exaggeration of what's already in the system, in the household, in the marriage, the good gets magnified, our peace of mind, our strong relationships, and so does the shaky and the broken. Which brings me to thoughts about risk in America. First, what caught our attention was news of the disproportionate effect COVID-19 is having on low-income folks in our country. Of course it is. Low-income folks are more likely not to have health insurance or be underinsured. They are disproportionately the ones who are in frontline jobs, the ones that don't come with protective gear when you walk in the door, or didn't in the beginning. Low-income folks are the ones who often don't have options to work from home, and even if they did, home might not be such a safe place because if we are low-income, we tend to live in homes with a higher density of family and friends there with us. We are also disproportionately represented in jails and immigration detention facilities where the issues of overcrowding and rapid spread of the illness also looms large. If we are low income, we are homeless. And if we add into the equation our likelihood of having food insecurity and other stresses and worries of being financially precarious, and we correlate all of that to the effects on our health, we are more prone to illnesses, and our immune systems are already taxed by high levels of cortisol, all of which means, among other things, we are at an increased risk of illness and death even before COVID showed up on the scene. 
But if we're talking about risk and who bears it disproportionately, we have to unpack those low-income stats a little bit more. Because if we're low-income in America, <clears throat> if we're in that at high at-risk group, we know that there's only an 8% chance that we are white, even though the population of the U.S. is 60% white. There's a 21% chance, though, that we're black, though black Americans are only 12% of the U.S. overall population. Non-white Hispanics and Asian Pacific Islanders will also be disproportionately represented in this group of low-income Americans, and certainly our Native American brothers and sisters will be. Disproportionate to their proportion of the population, and if you compare it to a white American's chances of being poor, well, it's off the charts. A friend of mine said recently, she doesn't think wealth should be measured in dollars or shares of stock. She said it should be measured in choice, the ability to have choices. The choice to go to the Hamptons when New York is a hot spot the choice to take sick days, the freedom to work from home, the ability to buy food that allows you that full belly so you can sleep well and have a better chance of a robust immune system the next day. So it isn't really a surprise, even though the stats aren't fully in to hear, that right now the virus disproportionately affects those who cannot mitigate risk, not nearly as much, because they don't have the wealth of choices, and that those folks are disproportionately people of color. What does that mean in COVID days? Well, it means, among other things, if we are black in America, we are twice as likely already to have died from the coronavirus than if we are white, and that's just the start. <clears throat> There are, of course, other risks to being brown or black or Asian or native and indigenous in America. Some of those have also been in the news lately, haven't they? The hunting down of Ahmad Arbery, horrific, and also part of a long legacy of hatred toward black bodies in America, a long history of tolerance for terror and lynching. Then, lately, there have been all the increased attacks on Asian Americans, the rearing of the ugly head of xenophobia, also with its long history of dehumanization and danger from the Chinese Exclusion Act, the encampment of Japanese American citizens in World War II, and all the racism that allowed all of these policies that is right there, ready to be stoked and perpetuated again by the highest levels of political leadership, in which brings with it great risk of bodily harm and ongoing fear, and then, of course, like all these things, the long-term trauma of diminishment and discrimination. No less is the diminishment of our Hispanic and indigenous siblings, one that dates back also far in our history to colonialism and the so-called missions whose mission was genocide and slavery, whose churches are badges of shame, if we're honest about it, 
and to which we can, of course, add the genocide of Native Americans, which one government official of that time called the last great human hunt, though I think he was optimistic to call it the last. Let's hope so. All of which shows up now, among other things, in our tolerance for hundreds of thousands of Hispanic and indigenous folk from Central and South America to be held without charges or trial in subhuman conditions to fuel our private, private prison system. Oof. If you are non-white in America, you know the feeling of existential risk, of things about your world, about your body, not of your own making that put you at risk you cannot mitigate. You know and always have what a tiny invisible virus has forced all of the white friends and neighbors of yours finally to confront the reality of living with a constant existential fear that you cannot entirely control or protect yourself from, even if many whites have more wealth of choice to seek out that protection. So maybe this chapter of our collective life as Americans, as awful as it is and will be, maybe it will teach our nation something, something about risk, something about terror. Maybe white Americans who are not low income will come to know in our twisting stomachs, in our late night waking sweats, in our weeping for lost loved ones, the senseless losses, know what an unacceptable reality it is for anyone to live with that kind of fear, at that kind of risk, so unable to do anything about it. Maybe. If so, Maybe then, when our nation finds its vaccine for the novel coronavirus-19, we can start working on things that don't have a vaccine or a hope of that kind of quick fix. Maybe. Maybe we can decide that the disproportionate, brutal, soul-numbing, body-breaking risk of some that has always been borne by some will be our next pandemic to fix. And ask all of our university and private sector experts and all our passionate problem solvers who have come to center stage and our eager philanthropic funders and our citizens who are joining in unity and shared effort, put all of us to the business of unraveling this illness and discover the complicated behavioral changes and institutional and social reforms that this work will require of us and start to heal. It would be the kind of work that faithful people are famous for, wouldn't it? The best of the work of faithful people. The work of resurrecting life 
from its places of decimation and loss. So, the second piece of the Sermon on Risk, God, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour and the hours to come. May we learn to navigate risk, to mitigate all of it together. In that spirit, in the spirit of healing and hope, let's sing our final hymn of the morning. It's in your order of service. unto us and grant us peace for this is the day we are given let us rejoice 
and be glad in it. Amen. to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday morning worship service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, weekly flame, and much, much more. 